Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Spiritual Insights with Charlotte Spicer. Spirituality and Metaphysics Talk Radio, featuring a course in miracles, dream interpretation, guided meditation, and the psychic and metaphysics free-for-all. It's your opportunity to consult with a professional psychic medium, discuss past lives, the chakras, and more. We are non-denominational, and there are no limits. Want to change your life? You must first change your mind. 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 No matter your religious structure, cultivate peace in your reality through self-awareness with an authentic spiritual teacher. And now, your host... Charlotte Spicer. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to tune in. This is the anniversary of 9-11, and so this segment is dedicated to the souls whose physical lives ended on September 11th, to their families, and to all of us who continue to grieve and struggle to understand an act of insanity that simply cannot be understood. President Barack Obama today had these words to say. It has now been 13 years, 13 years since the peace of an American morning was broken, 13 years since nearly 3,000 beautiful lives were taken from us, 13 years after small and hateful minds conspired to break us. America stands tall and America stands proud. Today, Dr. Bob and I will explore defense and attack as the cornerstones of the ego's thought system and the subtle yet essential role played by defenses in maintaining the ego's illusionary world of bodies, sin, and guilt. As you listen to this segment, please join us by lighting a candle and offering your own glorious, unifying light to all people around the globe. If you would like to share your thoughts on these topics or ask Dr. Bob a question, dial 347-934-0751. Press 1 to get into the queue. If you're tuning into the archive, please comment at From Plagues to Miracles or Spiritual Insights Radio on Facebook. Thank you so much, and welcome back, Dr. Bob. Great to be Thank together you, again. Thank you, Char. Thank you. It's so, How are so you? great being here again. Mm-hmm. I love these days because I, I, it's, I get an opportunity to immerse more into A Course in Miracles, and it has this sublime effect on me, so of course I'm floating at the moment. Oh, wonderful. Yeah I, yeah, I use these talks the same way. It's like, okay, here's a topic, and I, I know what I think about it, but I get to go deeper into the material and, you know, find passages that I might not otherwise have uh, registered. So it's, it's a really nice way of focusing my thoughts and, and you know, yeah. and helping to get the material in at a deeper level. Yes, and... As I was doing that myself earlier, I found that in our last segment, we discussed the atonement. And the same paragraph that we referenced about the atonement mentions defense. And I thought, oh, what an interesting segue that is. And it, I also thought to mention to the audience, another, another way to look at atonement is to kind of change its pronunciation momentarily to at <laughs> Yes, so, I love that. Good stuff. And you know, so I thought I'd mention that. But let's uh, jump in. Tell us what thoughts you would like to share on defense and attack. Yeah, so this is, this is um, a complex topic for a couple of reasons, <clears throat> because most of us think of defense as physical defense. And I think this is where 
you know, 9-11 and, and the wars that this country has been engaged in really ever since um, become so topical. Because the Corps says, you know, if I defend myself, I'm attacked. That's Lesson 135, which happens to be the longest lesson in the entire workbook. Um, in fact, that does have some relevance as to just how important this topic is. Mm -hmm. But, you know, uh, I mean, if you look at the world we're built on, you know, self-defense is a justification for murder. Uh, in other words, if you're defending yourself, if you're defending your life and livelihood, if you're defending your castle or your family, attack is perfectly justified. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, a, it's an excuse in court. Um, so defense and attack are indeed cornerstones of the world we live in. But there's another level of defenses that the course um, – I believe is really talking more about, and that's the level of psychological defenses. Um, mm -hmm. Freud introduced this concept, and Bill and Helen being, you know, um, psychologists at Columbia University and being steeped in psychoanalysis in the 1960s, I mean, psychoanalysis was the reigning paradigm for all psychology, um, mm -hmm. they would have known exactly what these defenses were about. And of course, the two are not unrelated. As with everything in the Course, the outer always comes from the inner. You know, projection makes perception. So our outer defensiveness and our need to defend against the enemies that we perceive out there, whether it's, mm -hmm. you know, Al-Qaeda or ISIL, ISIS, or, you know, that person down the street who just never says hi when you wave, um, they all proceed really from an inner stance of defensiveness that gives rise to the outer. But, you know, because, yeah, but so because it is 9-11, you know, let, let's start with that. I mean, you know, before the show started, Shar and I were talking about the sort of incredible contrast of that day. I mean, here in the Northeast, it was one of the most gorgeous days you can think of. There was truly not a cloud in the sky. It was, you know, absolutely crystal clear blue. And then the news started trickling in and the rumors with it. And, you know, when it got worse and worse, the anthrax scare came, I don't know, maybe a week after, two weeks after. Uh, on the block where we lived, I remember watching um, a, a hazmat truck pull up to one of my neighbor's homes and, you know, a guy get out in a big suit and they're dusting the mailbox because she got a letter with powder in it and assumed that it was some kind of a bacteriological attack. Um, oh. that's the level of paranoia that was running through the world at that time. I'd like to focus maybe less on the actual events of 9-11, which clearly were horrible, although we might want to take a look at why they were so horrible, um, and for a moment look at the karma from it, the aftermath. You know, we went okay. to war in Afghanistan, and then we went to war in Iraq. Uh, and with this whole ISIS-ISIL thing, we're seeing how effective that attack defense defense attack um, plan works out I mean you know it's almost like nothing's changed we just switched the uh, the personalities and instead of Saddam Hussein now we've got you know the the leaders of this other group and there's still beheadings and really um, it you know it's kind of like what's the phrase you know as you sow so shall you reap um, mm -hmm. here we are we're reaping the, the same things violence begets violence begets violence and if you look back at human history, I mean, isn't this the result of just about every single war 
with one notable and glaring exception, and I want to look at that because the notable and glaring exception is World War II, where I think for whatever reason, um, the Allied armies were so victorious that there was no ambiguity, you know, unconditional surrender from Germany and Japan. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, we didn't go in with the need to punish. We didn't go in saying we're going to destroy these countries or break them up. We went in with the Marshall Plan and said we want to rebuild them. You know, we want to help. I, I, would, I would propose that that is a global um, international model of forgiveness. You know, forgiveness, I mean, we, we let it go. We didn't forget it. I mean, thank God, there are, you know, museums to the Holocaust all over the place, the, the Normandy mm-hmm. beaches. But we didn't try to punish the people any further. I think the war itself had been so punishing that it was, let's rebuild. And what was the consequence of that rebuilding? Well, we now um, have two countries that are perfect democracies with, you know, that are our staunch allies. Um, you know, Germany has done its due diligence and, you know, they're, the, the younger generations know all about the Holocaust and, and what happened with the Nazi party. They're probably the country least likely to go that path again. Um, by contrast, neighboring the, uh, Austria has done none of that work. Uh, and from what I'm told, uh, anti-Semitism still thrives in, uh, in Austria. But, mm-hmm. but, you know, when we defend we immediately set up the other guy as the enemy. And at that point, we're not interested in any similarities. Gee, they have families too. They don't want to die. They just want their lives um, to proceed peacefully. And, and, And notice, when someone is an enemy, what's happening? There's an increase in the separation. Um, If you look at one time, I used to give um, talks on the nature of evil uh, and I would distill down evil as just those manifestations of separation. And the more separate different people, different organizations, different entities feel, the greater their capacity for doing harm, violence, and evil. So, you know, a corporation that honors its shareholders above the values of uh, the people where it lives can pollute and dump stuff in the water without thinking about it because, you know, in their view, the shareholders are more important. There's a separation there. If we make, um, you know, uh, someone the enemy, then we can bomb them from a distance and, you know, they're just, you know, a bunch of uh, creeps who want to kill us anyway. Uh, and, And there is no room in that picture for forgiveness, for love, it completely blocks out um, really all the values that A Course in Miracles, um, you know, tells us bring about peace. Right. So this, 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 this plan that we've been using of taking our fear, projecting it out into the world, battling and attacking it out there in order to kill it and destroy it, I mean, President Obama said yesterday, we will degrade ISIS and destroy them. And I thought to myself, yeah, maybe we will. And all of the people who, you know, died will want revenge. And, uh, and another group will form up at some point. Um, you know, in, in yeah. a sense, we have to teach peace to learn it. Um, so, you know, the, the defense doesn't work because it forces or it arises from an identification with the physical body. Uh, and the Course tells us, I am not a body, I am free. If I'm identifying with the body, then I'm going to die, and then I'm afraid of running out of resources, and I'm going to attack you to get my resources, and 
on and on and on. If I'm not a body, if I'm free, if I'm identified with the Son of God, as are you and everyone else, then who's there to attack me? What can be taken from me? How can oneness lose anything? It's one. You can't divide it. You can't separate it. There's, there is no turning oneness into anything but one. And, and so that becomes an impregnable, impregnable? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, a, a defense, if you will, that is completely defenseless, and it can't be used in any way but for peace. And when you said that we talked about the atonement last time, uh, I, I noticed that too. It says the atonement is the only defense that, that doesn't have a, you know, two edges to it. It can't be turned right. against us. And, right. and I think this is why. Because the atonement reminds us that all mind is one, and in that knowingness, uh, you know, there is no defense, there's no attack, you know, there's just peace, there's oneness. Right. So that's mm-hmm. the problem with outer defensiveness. Now, let me pause before going to the psychological um, thoughts. Do you mm-hmm. have uh, something you want to add? No, I just, uh, well, yeah, I could add a lot. I just, I, <laughs> I simply, yeah. I, yeah, of course, my mind is uh, reeling with all these beautiful thoughts. But just to make the make mention of the fact that defenselessness is strength. And, yeah. you know, as, as you move through the course, you learn that uh, worry and fear uh, are so useless. It's, it, they just indicate that you're out of control. Peace and acceptance means that you are in control. So if you're defense, uh, defensive, that's weakness. Defenselessness is strength. That's all I wanted to Add to that. Yeah. I mean, you know, given that, uh, that time is an illusion, we can't look at the results of our actions just in terms of what happens immediately afterwards. I mean, you know, the battle in Afghanistan, I mean, it was a rout. We destroyed them, and, you know, and it mm. looked like this huge victory. Ah, uh, where are we now? Um, by contrast, Jesus, as a teacher of peace and as the ultimate teacher of defenselessness with the crucifixion and the resurrection, yeah, the Romans destroyed his body. Um, They didn't destroy his being. The resurrection took place. The resurrection opened up all of these other minds to his light, his truth, um, the power of that defensive message. And where are we 2,000 years later? Well, I don't see a whole lot of Roman legions around. Um, there are no more Roman emperors. The greatest mm-hmm. empire in the world built on perhaps the you know, most ruthless military model, that's gone. On the other hand, where's Jesus' teaching? It's everywhere. I mean, okay, granted, it's been transformed and in some places corrupted a little bit, but mm-hmm. it's everywhere because peace will always triumph given enough time. Um, so that, that was a great, uh, a great addition, and thank you for that. Mm. Um, so let's pivot to um, defenses as the Course is mostly talking about them. Um, and to do that, you need some understanding of psychoanalytic jargon. So the fact that I'm a psychiatrist becomes relevant here. I had to learn all this stuff, um, and it does have some value. So the idea of a psychological defense is that reality, and and I'm talking here not reality with a capital R, um, for a moment we're just going to talk about psychology and, you know, not the course. The world that the body and the brain think they live in is so fraught with danger and hurt and loss 
that the mind has to set up these barricades, um, you know, these sandbags along the banks of the river to keep all of these things from overflowing and just swamping us with emotion that we have no idea how to deal with. Mm. Um, and so psychological defenses supposedly protect us from, you know, the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune um, that confront us on all sides as, you know, limited beings um, with limited lives. Um, the insults can be things that we deem unacceptable. Um, they can be overwhelming. They can be destructive. Um, they can be just our interpretation of, of something dangerous. And, mm -hmm. and there's a whole, a whole um, catalog of, of different psychological defenses that people use. Um, psychology would call some of them more primitive, some of them uh, more sophisticated. But they're all designed in some way, shape, or form to buffer us from reality. And I'm going to uh, – so the, the most bedrock is denial. And the Course does talk about denial. Um, Years and years ago, I went to Washington, D.C. with a girlfriend, so you know it was years and years ago. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and, you know, we parked our car and we went to uh, the, uh, the, the National Gallery of Art, you know, these just beautiful collections, and we wandered through and we had this great afternoon. And we went back to the car, and, you know, where I thought I parked it, suddenly there were just no cars there whatsoever. And I did this double take of, um, I'm sure I parked here. How could this have happened? And, you know, and then I kind of looked at the sign. And the funny thing is this has happened to me before in New York City with alternate side of the street parking when I was living there. I parked one day and went back, you know, the next day to move my car, and it was gone. And, I, you know, denial sets in and goes, boy, some, I must have done it wrong. It's here somewhere. I, I, I just need to look harder, and I'm going to find it. It's here. Mm -hmm. And... When reality sets in, it's no, it's not here, and no, it wasn't stolen. It was towed, and I'm going to mm -hmm. have to go through the whole mess of getting it back. But denial is essentially the brain going, nah, that can't happen. That didn't happen. I don't believe it. I refuse to believe it. Um, I've seen this in hospitals with people with, you know, with cancers that had broken through their skin where 99% of us would be, you know, at the doctors long beforehand, and they're in the hospital with stage four cancer going, you know, doctor, do, do you think that's bad? And, you know, you're trying to say, yeah, we need to do something with it. And the very next day, they're saying, do you think that's bad? They, they literally can't let in, yeah. you know, uh, that reality. Mm -hmm. There are other defenses. We can displace uh, and, you know, take our feelings and put them somewhere else. This would be the classic, you know, the guy gets yelled at by his boss and he comes home and yells at his kids. He really okay. wants to yell back at his boss. Instead, he's yelling at his kids. Okay. Um, yep. There's projection where we take something uh, that's inner and we put it out in the world. Um, I can't think of an example of that right now. There's something called reaction formation where... You know, if we really um, are very uh, stingy and don't like to give money away, but we don't mm -hmm. want to be accused of it, we make a very generous gift. Uh, it sort of props up the self-image that we want people to see and allows us to mm -hmm. go, no, no, I'm, I'm really a very generous human being. Look, look at what I did. Um, all the addictions are basically defenses. You know, why should I okay. feel bad about you know, my marriage breaking up or the loss of my job when, you know, I can just have a drink or smoke a joint and I can feel better. 
it, it takes the problem, moves it somewhere else, and attempts to hide the problem from us so that we don't have to deal with it. Um, and one of the most popular today, uh, you know, uh, they call it sublimation, but for example, uh, working it through. So if you're really anxious, go jogging, and by the end of your five-mile run, your body's so tired that, ah, oh, you feel a lot better. You haven't solved the problem at all. The problem's still out there, but you feel a lot better because, you know, you sort of ran away from it in a different, uh, in a different venue. Um, but the thing we want to look at here, and, and this is what the course is talking about in terms of um, two ed the two-edged quality to defenses, is that every defense carries with it the thing that it is trying to defend you against. Um, mm -hmm. When I used to teach hypnosis, you know, I would start uh, a class often by saying, all right, I want everyone, whatever you do, do not think about a zebra. And then I'd say, so how did that go? And point out that in order to not think about a zebra, in order to block it from your mind, you sort of have to think about it first and then get rid of it. That's what defenses do. Um, ooh, I'm afraid of that. Now I'm going to wrap it up in a pretty package. Um, the section of the course, uh, the text called The Two Pictures, uh, yeah. talks about this, you know, that we focus so much on the frame that we don't have to look at the desolate, scary, shame-based, uh, guilt-ridden, sinful picture within. That's what a defense does. The defense says, oh, look at this lovely frame. Oh, this is great. Uh, but whatever you do, don't look at that picture, you know. Uh, and, of course, if we're going to be dealing with reality, we have to look at the picture. We want to look at the picture. In, uh, in my book, From Plagues to Miracles, I spend an entire chapter, Chapter 7, talking about defenses, but using the example in the book of Exodus of Pharaoh's magicians. So mm -hmm. just a brief recap here. Um, you know, God uh, inflicts ten plagues on the Egyptian people in order to get Pharaoh to um, let the Hebrew people go free. Uh, in the parable, yes, we experience plagues of our, you know, hardships, uh, insults to our ego, in order to realize that the ego's operating system, its plan for our lives doesn't work, and we really you know, need to let go and, uh, and find our freedom somewhere else. Um, but the first, the first three of those, no, the first two of those plagues, um, Pharaoh calls on his magicians, and they come out and they go, oh, hey, we can do this too. You know, uh, the first is all the water in the Nile River turns to blood. And the Bible says, oh, but Pharaoh's magicians turn the Nile River to blood too. The second is an infestation of frogs. And Pharaoh's magicians say, oh, look, you know, we can make frogs come out of the river too. But what I point out is once all the water has been turned to blood, there is no more fresh water to turn to blood. So Pharaoh's magicians are sort of pulling a con. They're not really doing anything um, that's factual. They're, you know, it's almost like saying, uh, don't look over there. Here, I've taken this water. See, I turned it into blood too. They're piggybacking on the plague, um, God's miracle that's already there. Same with the frogs. You know, there are all mm -hmm. these frogs coming up out of the river. Well, you know, that's just what God did. Uh, you know, Pharaoh's magicians can't duplicate what God does. They can't duplicate a miracle. So our psychological defenses have the effect that Pharaoh's magicians have on Pharaoh of saying, don't worry, you don't need to change anything. Everything's just fine. 
Um, we don't need to, you know, to pay attention to that leaking roof. Um, it, it, it's not that bad, and I'm sure it won't ever get worse. Um, and, of course, as a result, it does get worse, and the plagues escalate and get worse. And even by the third plague, Pharaoh's magicians say, you know, dude, Pharaoh, we, we, we can't do this. This is the work of God. But, of course, he still doesn't listen because the ego can never listen. So defense mechanisms are the ego's way of whispering in your ear and telling you, if you'll only listen to me, if you'll only follow me, ego, I promise I'll keep you safe. You'll never be hurt. You'll never have to die. I will make plans. I will see those dangers coming. We can attack those bad guys before they ever get near us. Just follow my plan for salvation, which is sin and attack, and everything's going to go just fine. Um, and we all know how that story turns out because yeah, we've all lived it. Yeah, it's not going to come back at me. <laughs> yeah, right. It's right. just not going to bounce back. <laughs> yeah, not ever, right? Um, never, no. Nobody's ever heard of it doing that. Well, if you yeah. plan it right, it won't, right? If you <laughs> exactly. Invest, here's what you do. Take two weeks and invest all your time, effort, and energy into your, the perfect plan of attack, execute it, and then just let it go because nothing's ever going to come back to you, right? <laughs> Precisely. That's, and, that's just, and that's what many of us That's do. what the ego tells us. Exactly. Yeah, that's what, you know, and I mean, lesson 135, uh, you know, specifically states, if you make plans, self-initiated plans, they are defenses. If I'm planning against a contingency that I'm afraid of, and, and by the way, we all do this all the time. Don't think for a moment that, you know, that I don't make plans. But I'm not just talking about, okay, Char and I are going to, you know, do this second Thursday thing once a month. I mean, that's convenient. I'm talking about plans against future what-if scenarios. You know, what if Al-Qaeda were to attack New York? What if, uh, you know, my neighbor got a gun and started shooting? Uh, mm -hmm. What if, what if, what if? The ego is a master at dreaming up horror show scenarios oh my God. and throwing them at us so that, we, um, so that we submit and go along with its plans and its defenses. But as the Course says, its defenses are two-edged. And therefore, what happens is, we get what we think we're defending against. And ultimately, what do we get? We get death, because the ego and the body uh, are the symbols of separation. The ego actually likes death because it proves that we're, not, that we're not related to God, that we are not the creation of God. We are this frail thing. And, and in its own bizarre, twisted logic, um, the ego thinks that it's going to survive and we're not. Uh, and, and so every one of the ego's plans is really uh, a carefully dressed up, gilded, beautiful little jewel of a package that contains death within it. Because mm. by following its plan, you are overlooking your true identity as spirit. Uh, and, you know, I, I have often wondered how many people um, die and then, you know, they're not in their body anymore and they're kind of like, whoa, what, what happened? Um, oh, you mean some aspect of myself is still here? I, I hadn't planned on that. Hmm, what do I do now? Uh, because they never had the chance to really shift the identification from the ego and the body to spirit, to the Christ mind, um, to the practice of forgiveness, and you know, to the Holy Spirit's curriculum. Uh, oh. So this is the problem you know, with defenses, is that whatever it might look like in the world, 
they're ultimately the ego's attempts to defend us against the truth of who we are. They're the ego's attempts to defend us against God because the ego thinks God's going to kill us. And we know from, from miracles, from the course, that no, God isn't going to kill us. All God wants for you is perfect peace. Um, all God wants for you is, is love everlasting. In fact, so I don't forget, I wanted to read this one passage from Lesson 135 that I have, like, you know, marked with umpteen different lines and things. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's paragraph 18 from Lesson 135, and it just says, okay. what, what could you not accept if you but knew that everything that happens, all events, past, present, and to come, are gently planned by one whose only purpose is your good? Perhaps you've misunderstood his plan, for he would never offer pain to you. But your defenses did not let you see his loving blessing shine in every step you ever took. While you made plans for death, he led you gently to eternal life. That's it, right there in a nutshell. It's when we can relinquish our plans, realize that our ego minds really don't know the path there. They can't get us to prom the promised land. They can't get us to the real world. All they can do is distract and distort and block the path. And when we recognize that and say there must be a better way and I will step back and let him lead the way, uh, that's when the miracles come in. So that's why I, I, I offered as a title for this talk, you know, the, the sort of the idea that, that defenses are kind of the ego's counter to miracles, because what defenses do is they're rooted in the world of time. We look at what happened to us before in the past. We project it into the future and say, if we don't do something different, it's going to happen again. Um, those who don't remember the past are doomed to repeat it. Uh, and yet we always do repeat it, and we better take plans and make precautions, etc., etc., etc. And in doing that, we completely block the opening that would allow Holy Spirit or higher self, I like that they're both HS, um, to bring a miracle to us that transcends time, that saves time, that can save up to thousands of years, as the Course puts it, um, and that in the metaphor of Exodus, parts the Red Sea and allows us to cross an obstacle that we thought was absolutely impossible. So again, the ego's defenses keeps us stuck in time, um, offers us death in this neat little dressed up package, uh, and blocks all of the wisdom that spirit is always trying to offer us every moment. All things are lessons God would have me learn. Uh, and the moment we let go in my defenselessness, my safety lies, lesson 153, then, then the whole world of miracles, guidance, and uh, forgiveness and peace opens up to us. So that's my uh, diatribe, my, my, my sermon for today. Um, there's more we could say, and I'm sure we'll come back to it, but uh, let me just put that out there and uh, see what thoughts it, it triggered for you, Shar. I loved it, and I especially loved the information from the psychological standpoint and all of the um, terms that you gave us with, you know, how we mm. do that, the displacement uh, projection. Of course, that's a huge one, and I think that one is more easily understood by course students. Um, yes. But displacement and reaction formation, addictions, sublimation. Uh, let me clarify uh, or ask a clarifying question if I could. So you're yeah. saying that sublimation is basically a way of working through it 
rather than reacting immediately, kind of stepping back from it and then coming back with a fresh perspective? Um, sublimation is considered in the, the sort of Freudian hierarchy the highest defense, that is the healthiest, because it doesn't involve impulsive action, it's not psychotic. Um, it's basically saying, uh, yeah, you're going to work it through in the world of reality. So, for example, if I'm terrified of poverty because I grew up in a home where there was never enough to eat and I didn't know how to do that, I mean, and I didn't know where my next meal was coming from and that I might starve, um, the defense of sublimation would be, yeah, you know what, I'm going to work really hard and I'm going to make sure that I never get that again. Now, we mm -hmm. can say that's a very natural response and, and, and obviously a much healthier one than I'm just going to commit suicide because I'm never going to eat or I'm going to go steal food from someone else uh, or, mm. you know, all those rich people who have food, etc. But, um, you know, you're still working off the basis of fear. Now, it might be that in the course of time you get to a place of, in a sense, crossing that Red Sea and going, wow, I've been afraid that I'm going to starve for so long, and you know what, it's, it's never happened, and I now have, uh, you know, come up with, you know, whatever dollar number feels like the, the, the safe number for you. I have that mm -hmm. much. Ah, you know, why am I doing this? Um, whereas the person who can't, who can't get to the other side is always going to have to be earning more money, putting more away, because it's all being driven by a core fear still that, yeah, I've now got $100 million, but you never know. It could all disappear tomorrow because that's what happened when I was a kid. Um, so uh, ideally, if, if we're growing and learning, we grow out of a defense. Um, but if we don't, then, uh, you know, it, it stays there. Oh, I just remembered. I, I wanted to give a, a perfect example of, of how defenses block us from reality, how they distort even in, you know, even in the world of illusion, they distort what we're dealing with. So my younger sister um, was bitten by a dog when she was about seven years old. It was a really nasty German shepherd that lived across the street in a fenced enclosure, and it jumped the fence uh, and, you know, bit her leg, and, you know, she needed stitches. I mean, it was truly, I'm sure, an absolutely terrifying experience. Traumatic, and yeah. So yeah, really traumatic, exactly. And the defense that she took from that was dogs are dangerous and I will not get near any dog. But that defense was so global that she could no longer distinguish between a nasty German shepherd who's growling and whose ears are flattened against its head and, you know, a friendly little um, toy poodle or beagle who's, you know, coming with its tongue lolling and, you know, frisky and jumping up. They mm -hmm. were all scary. What she needed to learn to do was begin to let the, the, what seemed scary in in order to see that, oh, not all dogs are, you know, not all dogs are terrifying. They're not all going to attack you. Um, you know, there, there are certain signs of a dangerous dog and others that aren't. But the defense mechanism distorts reality. And if she doesn't get to the place of going, all right, this is kind of scary, but, you know, um, everyone's telling me this dog is safe, and I'm watching other people pet this beautiful, cute little dog, um, and they're laughing and joking. I need to take the risk and let it in. If she doesn't do that, she goes through life with a phobia about dogs, and, and they're all terrifying because the original trauma has not gone away. Right. Uh, and we all do this, I believe, with 
our core survival fears because because we do identify uh, and we grow up identifying you know with the body as our sense of self uh, that's why sometimes the work of A Course in Miracles feels so difficult because what the Course is really doing is nothing short of saying to us, transform your identity, let go of what you think you are. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's just a mask. That's just an illusion. You know, you all went to uh, a scary Halloween party and put on a mask and you went home and forgot how to take it off and now you've been living in a scary Halloween party ever since and the Course is saying, let us help you take off that mask and let us help you take off everybody others, every other person's mask so that you can see there's nothing there but light and love. But we go, no, I've seen that mask. You know, that's a vampire. That's a werewolf. I, I'm not letting that one get close. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it's so tough. Okay. Excellent. I yeah. just want to uh, make uh, mention that uh, I do see people in the call queue, uh, but there is not a question mark next to your phone number. So if you have a question, you need to press 1. Otherwise, I'll take it to mean that you just want to listen. I don't want to disturb anybody um, from listening. But if you have a question, press number 1, and I'll get to you. Uh, I have something to add to your uh, words about denial. Mm-hmm. Uh, my memory started, you know, jumping, of course, and you were talking about how you go to where your car was and how it kind of defied logic. It was there. It's not there. This, what I'm looking at, <laughs> is not real. This is not true because in my mind I see my car there. And that's happened to me several times when my handbag got stolen where you stare at the place where you had it and you're like, this doesn't make sense. And you look around and look for ways to make this untrue. You know, and it's that feeling anybody's had, whether you lost your keys or your wallet or your child in a department store, that moment of disbelief and panic and denial. And you kind of go through the phases of grief in three seconds. You know what I mean? You you bargain. You you get upset. You get mad. You try to do all this stuff and go through the, the cycles of grief at such a rapid speed that it's dizzying. And I just wanted to add to that that um, I think we can all understand what Dr. Bob was talking about when uh, he himself had that that moment of denial with respect to his car disappearing into thin air because most physical objects don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen it happen, but most physical objects don't do that. Right. Usually Um, it's on a stage of a magic show uh, or, uh, you know. But note, too that until you get to acceptance, you really are not in a position to turn it over and allow higher guidance, higher wisdom, um, Holy Spirit to come in and begin to transform that situation for you. If you are in bargaining, well, you know, maybe the car just, uh, maybe my my kid's lost, but, uh, you know, they haven't been taken, you know, I don't know, you know, as long as there's a defense mechanism operating, you haven't gone to acceptance of what is. Right. And, and you have to accept in order to then begin to deal with what is. Uh, this is where the work of um, Byron Katie, uh, Loving What is, uh, is, is so radical but so important. You know, mm-hmm. She basically says, if it's in your life, you created it, there it is, accept it. Don't battle yep. it. Don't go, oh, God, I can't believe, you know. It, there it is. Okay. I don't have enough money for that bill. Got it. 
um, let me turn it over. Let me look at the core fear. Let me see where it may resonate to. But most of all, does that define me? Um, does that uh, make me a bad human being? Or is it more, yeah, I, I need to step back and let him lead the way. And I don't even know what's in my own best interest. Maybe there will be you know, something coming down the pike that this can teach me. Mm. But we have to get to acceptance first. Right. And there is an example I wanted to offer to support what you were saying about this gilded package of death, you know, mm. through defense. And you had uh, mentioned two scenarios, and I wanted to add – I had the perfect scenario to add to it, which is the thoughts that go through our, our minds as we're getting ready for work in the morning. And Keep going, that, yeah. That, that nightmare – picture show that takes place. What are they going to do to me today? What are they going to say to me today? Who's out to get me today? Who's sabotaging my projects? Am I going to get there late and then it's going to be this and, and all of the pseudo predictions of terrible experiences. And my, the point I want to make about that, and then I want you to uh, talk about it, but the point I want to make about it is look at the extra stress you're putting so, yourself under just by indulging in those thoughts. Yes. That adds so much more stress to your mind, your body, and your day. And what I tell a lot of my clients to do is, while you're getting ready for work, project light onto your coworkers and your supervisor and invoke harmony. You know, put that picture in your mind so that no matter what happens, maybe you will get attacked. But worrying about it isn't going to help you. What will help you is to be in a space of forgiveness and acceptance and then dealing with it appropriately, even if we do that sublimation thing Dr. Bob taught us today. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Does that make sense? Um, yeah, I, I think it, it's actually a much better example than, say, fear of dying, which most of us are so able to defend against and push away that, mm-hmm. you know, that we never look at it and, until someone we know and love dies or a peer of ours, you know, dies suddenly and we're we're brought up against our mortality. But I, I, I love it because, you know, that really is what goes on in our minds and most people's minds about work. The uh, time of the week that has the highest incidence of heart attacks is Monday morning. That, my friends, is no coincidence. That is because there are more people stressing um, and weaving in their minds exactly those kinds of scenarios that you were just describing, Shar, on yeah. Monday morning than at any other time in the week. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to, uh, I, I refer to this process as, um, you know, the ego's nightmare factory. The ego just is, you know, I, I picture this building and they're just great at manufacturing nightmares, one after another after another. Uh, when I lived in California, and my wife knows this one, and uh, I had a home office with a separate door that opened up at the opposite end of the hallway, so it was much closer to the room where my um, infant daughter was sleeping than it was to our bedroom. Mm-hmm. And my nightmare factory ego mind would be telling me, well, you know, what if someone broke in there in the night and they took her and they whisked her out and you wouldn't even know it? And I'm, you know, racking my brains and I'm going to track them down to the ends of the earth and I'm going to get my kid back. And, you know, like you said, all of this high-level stress. And, and, you know, and then at some point reality would dawn and go, oh, but, you know, nothing's happened. And, um, by the way, those kinds of abductions are extraordinarily rare unless someone in the family is doing it. And, and, and why am I 
thinking about this at all? And, you know, uh, and putting yourself ego? through it. There's locks yeah. on the doors and the windows, right? So you've taken precautions and those measures yeah. were set and, in place. And, 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 and I really believe now, um, absolutely, in my defenselessness, my safety lies. I, I mm-hmm. think I could leave my car unlocked, and if I truly had no worry about it, um, I could leave it in the middle of a municipal parking lot or an airport parking lot, and I think it would be just fine when I got back. But, and here's the defense, if I do it as, as, as a reaction formation, as we call it, if it's like, well, I'm a little scared about my car, but I'm not going to let that stop me, I'm gonna, and I'm going to leave it unlocked on purpose, well, mm-hmm. law of attraction is much more likely than to come in and you're going to get back, and you're going to have, uh, you know, you're going to have to deal with what you were really afraid of. It's not mm. punishment. It's not because you were, you know, bad in it. It, it. It's just you didn't accept that the fear's there. Much better if you've got a fear, accept it. We all have them, and then mm-hmm. move from that fear, whether it's the ego's nightmare factory or whether it's something absolutely real that's, you know, seemingly real in the world of form that's confronting you. Accept mm-hmm. it. And then choose to use the operating system of spirit, of Holy Spirit, rather than of your ego, and, you know, just, just see what happens. Again, yeah. this is the value of the atonement. Um, you know, if you're going to work and you're painting nightmare scenarios, um, work is going to be hard, even if at the end of the day you go, yeah, that wasn't so bad, surprise. On the other hand, if your only goal at work at home with your family, in the shower, with your pets, uh, you know, at the gym. If your only goal anywhere is forgiveness, the sole purpose of the miracle worker is to accept the atonement for himself. And atonement and salvation and forgiveness, it's all one big ball of wax. If that's your only goal, then you're not going to work to have to worry about what your boss does. If your boss yells at you, um, well, that's just a call for love, and you're already in the place of forgiveness, so you're already loving. Good for you. Something's yeah. going to change. Yep, may not change that day, but it, it will change. Um, a woman hmm. in our Course in Miracles group was describing being really upset at her boss and feeling like, you know, at a meeting he kind of, you know, rammed his agenda down their throats, and she needed to say something and needed to confront him but was afraid of that. And then realized, you know, what is, she said to herself, what am I doing? I need to just let this go. Uh, and she did. She let it go. She turned up. Next morning, the boss comes up to her and says, you know, I've really been rethinking what I was saying. I, I, I don't want to do that anymore. And, you know, and he completely backed off of everything he'd been doing. She would never have gotten to that, uh, that outcome if she hadn't yes. let go. Yes. I have uh, quite a few things to add. You're reminding me of, uh, let me just make a quick note. I better say this quickly before Great. I lose it. You know how it is, Dr. Bob. I do, um, I do. With regard to that nightmare factory, um, a lot of my clients or students would say, oh, I have to do this, and this is what my family member is going to say or do. And they're in this full-blown reaction, and they haven't even gotten there yet. So I would talk them through it. In fact, I was talking to somebody a few hours ago on the same thing, and I, just to point out that the Course teaches that, you know, when the mind is doing that to you, generally the outcome is more often the exact opposite of what you're imagining. Yeah. And this is needless worryment. So to just, you know, accept, because a lot of times, and, and there was a, a situation with a family member where she had to 
approach another family member, but she was imagining a confrontation. And I mm-hmm. said, everything in your mind right now is probably the opposite of what she's going to do. And that was exactly right. I said, that's not to say she might not say something. But when she got there, it was a peaceful extremely peaceful scenario so she was like oh my god i was so worried i said see how your mind's doing this to you so pull back and like you said pull back and look at the big picture and perceive it correctly through the holy spirit's eyes yeah um i've also seen uh myself do this and a lot of other people is we tend to exaggerate the perceived damage the and we project this into a scenario of how how big you know see how the course says there's no size difference to miracles or no order of difficulty in miracles yes exactly so how the perceived damage of a situation is the amount of embarrassment the 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 amount of loss the amount of damage done and i kind of call this uh the chicken little line of defense because (laughs) what happened was an acorn fell on his head and he ran around screaming the sky is falling and we do tend to do this in our minds and exaggerate The what's happening and the amount of damage that it will ultimately cause, which is, again, the fear of death or annihilation. And I just wanted to bring that in there. But I wanted to mention that in my early 20s, people pulled me aside to tell me how defensive I was and ask why I was so defensive. And I said, what do you mean, defensive? And they were like, you're really defensive. I said, I really don't understand what you're referring to, if you could give me some examples, and I'll go look at that and work on it and try to figure that out for myself. And, you know, I don't want to be a, a pain in your backside. I don't want to get on your nerves. I need to learn about it. So they told me. They were very honest, and they were very respectful about it. Um, but I did manage to say, okay, so that's a knee-jerk reaction because Daddy used to do this, and Mommy used to Perfect. do this. And th- you know what I mean? Like, So I sat down and I did my homework, and I went with them and said, here's what I figured out about myself. Isn't that wonderful? And they were like, yeah, all right, whatever, sure. But, <laughs> you know, but that's, that's what... But you weren't defensive. That's what's so cool is I you know, they're defensive. accusing you of being defensive. You were able to accept what they were telling you. Yeah. You took it in, adjusted <laughs> where you needed to, and yeah. But but I I learned where I was unconscious of that behavior, and that was a beautiful thing, and I was very grateful for it. And I also learned about myself that the reason I did it was because I was very sensitive. And I'm very sensitive. To, I was to the point where if I did go into work and I said good morning and someone didn't give me a, an equal, an equally uh, cheerful good morning or, or hello, or if you walked by and there, you had a scowl on your face, I immediately thought I did something wrong. Mm. And was extremely sensitive to those things or the way people said things until I learned to, okay, don't react. You take a deep breath and whatever. But I also, I I learned from this and I found A Course in Miracles like 10 years later and got to learn more. But I learned that when we're overly sensitive like that, that oversensitivity is the byproduct of an outraged ego. So I needed to really go back in time, and once I figured out where those knee-jerk reactions were coming from, then I got to forgive the original occurrence, of course, that created the magnet for you to be so sensitive. But for anybody who's overly sensitive, I would try to help them with this, and you tell me, because you're the psychiatrist, I also found that that one person I knew would use this sensitivity as a way to control the behaviors of others. You can't say that to me. I'm extremely sensitive. What do you feel about that 
technique that people use to manipulate others? Well, you know, I mean, once again, it's it's a defense mechanism that's disguising uh, an attack. Essentially, what that person is saying is, you've just attacked me because I'm sensitive. Um, you know, that come. I mean, this this comes up in working with couples all the time, sure. and. I will frequently say, okay, wait a minute, can we just check that out? Was it your intention to be hurtful? And, and, you know, sometimes people will say, yeah, it really was. And yet when you shine a light on it that baldly, that nakedly, like, yeah, it was my intention to be um, hurtful, mm-hmm. the vast majority of people go, yeah, and I'm sorry, because we, we don't want to be hurtful. But even more often what happens is someone will say, um, no, that that really wasn't my intention, um, you know, and, and 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 I'm sorry that you heard it that way. And then the other person has a choice: do you accept and believe them and let it go, or do you go, no, you were you were trying to hurt me? And, exactly. and now, who's who's doing the attack? Um, exactly. But but sensitivity, in a way, I, I think you know it's. It's kind of like the um, the plagues of Exodus, uh, you know, where where we're hurting allows us to see where we have work to do. That's all. It's just a simple feedback mechanism. You know, we go into such shame and blame and rage over things that we think were done to us, uh, or in some instances that we did to others. Uh, and and indeed, um, you know. If if you um, if you punch someone in the arm over and over and over on the same spot, I guarantee you at some point if you just touch them lightly on that bruise, they're going to go, "Ow! Why did you do that?" Because there's already sensitization, uh, and there are people who have been punched over and over and over in the same spot. If we understand that, and if we recognize that um, as human beings anyway. We can't see their inner world. We don't know where they've been punched over and over and over. We, didn't, we don't know that, you know, our attempt at a friendly, um, you know, putting our hand on their arm, so to speak, is actually triggering tremendous pain or bringing up all of the hurt of when they were punched over and over and over. You know, right. if, if we can accept that we're not omniscient and that if someone reacts with a lack of love, it's because there's a lack of love and we can instead just provide love, then the world becomes a better place. Um, this is one of the benefits for me of being in my profession because when I'm in my office, you know, whatever goes on, I know it's, it's not me. And if they're reacting to me, like you with your friends and, you know, tell me what I – I do want to know. I'll sometimes say to people right at the beginning, you know, and if there's something that feels uncomfortable here or I say something you don't like, please tell me. I, I want to know that, you know. Right. I want us to be able to have this working relationship. But if anger comes up or hurt or shame, it's just, oh, okay, there's something there. What a wonderful opportunity. You know, let, let, let's, let's open it up, not close it down in order to finally heal that place that you judged as so painful that it was never going to be able to be healed. Uh, and once right. we do that and accept it, guess what? It's healed. You know, okay. I've worked with people who went through abuse so horrific that most of us wouldn't even believe it could be done to a child. 
And at the end of the day, when they get through it, and I don't mean that's an instant process of, oh, yes, I forgive them. Um, you know, I mean, I worked with someone who had to, you know, castrate her abuser over and over and, and throw his, you know, member in a, in a trash grinder. And, but mm-hmm. at the end of the day, and again, time is here for us to work this stuff through, it was over. And, and it no longer had any sting or triggering effect. That's what we need to learn is we're here, um, you know, not to defend, but to accept. And when we accept, it gives us the ability to work with it. And when we work with it uh, and grieve it or, you know, do whatever we need to turn it over, it, it actually does go away. So that ultimately that statement from the first section of part two of the workbook in the forgiveness section, forgiveness recognizes what you thought your brother did to you has not occurred, which mm-hmm. so many of us read the first time and go, what? What the heck are they talking about? It yeah, never rejected. occurred. Of course it did. Right. When you work it through, it is as if it never occurred. You're remembering a shell of a memory that has no more energy in it. It's spent. And in that sense, it really didn't occur because it has no consequences. Mm. Beautiful. There's another type of defense I'd like to bring up. Mm-hmm. In the supplement to A Course in Miracles, if you have the current version of A Course in Miracles, yours is included in your in your book. Uh, however, earlier versions have uh, the supplements, The Song of Prayer and Psychotherapy, Purpose, Process, and Practice. And in Psychotherapy, the Psychotherapy Supplement on page 10, uh, paragraph, it's section 4, The Process of Illness, paragraph 6, and it states, Illness of any kind, may be defined as the result of a view of the self as weak, vulnerable, evil, and endangered, and thus in need of constant defense. So I thought we'd talk about illness for a moment as a yes. means of defense. How, how's that? Um, it's perfect. Uh, and indeed, we talked a lot about Lesson 135, If I Defend Myself, I'm Attacked. The very next lesson, Lesson 136, Sickness is a Defense Against the Truth. Um, so what does sickness tell you? Um, it tells you you are a body. Uh, you know, Bill Thetford, who was a wonderful punster and loved wordplay, instead of saying, you know, I am not a body, I am free, for I am still as God created me, and go, you know, I am a body, I am sick, someone fetch a doctor quick. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, I've kind of, been able to read about it, but he is funny, and he's a, uh, for the people who don't know, he used to um, – put music to words like that and do like a little opera dance with his friends. Yeah. Jump around. Yeah. Sickness tells you, you really are a body. Um, and, and it's a very tough one to get around. Uh, and you know, we'll deny it. We'll sublimate. We'll take, you know, pills. We'll do surgery. And again, I am not saying, especially as an MD, that any of those are not to be done. Uh, I think actually somewhere in the psychotherapy manual it makes the point, or or maybe it's in the text, that um, the last thing you want to do is increase fear. And if taking a pill or getting surgery is going to decrease fear, then that is absolutely the way to go. I had a, uh, in 2002, I had a, a cardiac stress test thallium scan that was positive, and uh, they told me, you know, you might need a coronary bypass surgery. And I was shocked. And part of me was saying, you know, you don't have to accept this version of reality. But as a doctor, 
I knew I had to go and get the next level. I had to have a cardiac cath. Um, but I was able to get myself to a place of inner peace and, and non-attachment so that by the time I had the cath, I felt I could transform the whole situation. And indeed, I had a negative cardiac cath. And the guy said to me, yeah, it's extraordinarily rare, um, but you had a false positive. Uh, and uh, it was probably due to blah, 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 you know, scar tissue, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. But I do believe we can change our seeming reality on a dime, even around sickness. I mean, cancers do go away spontaneously with... Uh, yes, they do. With spir- yep, they can melt just like that. Uh, and, but, it, but it just shows that, that the mind is the cause and the body and the world of perception is the consequence, is the effect, exactly. exactly. I've done so it myself. So in that sense, um, just real quick thought, um, sure. the whole world of perception, everything we see and do, our physical body, illness, that is all really one great big defense. We are living in a defense box to keep away truth. Um, so, yeah, go ahead now with, uh, I'm sorry, I, I just wanted to get that out before I forgot it. No worry. Oh, I know how you feel. Uh, no, no worry. Um, I don't know what I wanted to say. I just, oh, I was saying that I've done it myself. Um, I remember the day clearly because it was so profound. It was in February of 1996, and I would get sinus infections repeatedly throughout the year, at least five a year. And they're hard. They can, they can really put you down for the count, and then mm. I would get uh, upper respiratory infections, and it was all indicative of my resistance to the people in my life and the jobs and scenarios and backstabbing friends and all of that uh, chaos that can be a large part of your 20s, you know. But I remember the day, and I said, you know what, it makes no sense to be this sick this often, and it serves no purpose whatsoever, I and I didn't. I can't say I, at that moment I felt an immediate shift. But two years later, when I went to my doctor and I said, "When was the last time I was sick?" He says, well, "Let me look." And he opens up my chart and he says, "Sure, it's been two years." I was like, "That's a miracle! I can't believe it." And, and but I did trace it back to that day, especially once I did find a course of miracles and said the belief in sickness. You know everything that says about that. And notice, you didn't, um, you know, castigate yourself for having it. You didn't, uh, I mean, all you did was accept it, and then you chose once again. Let, right. You know, there's another way to do this. And I don't even know what that looks like, but, but I mean, as per the chapter on miracles in, uh, in, mm-hmm. in, in my book, From Plagues to Miracles, you first do have to set an intention. You know, there has to be an intention for freedom. There has to be an intention that the ways in which we have characteristically learned to hurt ourselves and keep our walls and defenses up, that we are willing now to let those go. And, again, they don't have to be let go all at once. The beauty of the world of time is that it allows us to safely experiment and do the smallest increment of change that we feel safe with uh, in order to see that, that it worked. You know, um, my sister right. did not have to get in the pen with a Great Dane that was, you know, six feet tall uh, in order to overcome her phobia. She could start with, uh, we actually got the cutest little, you know, part beagle and, uh, you know, and, and she worked it through that way. <laughs> good, good. And I, I just, if, if anybody would like to test this theory, you know, if, if the course states that the body is an illusion, 
and if the body reflects the mind, then if we want to change our body, then we just have to change our mind. So the next time it feels like you're starting to get a cold, do what I do and tell yourself, and you tell me if, if you have anything to add, Dr. Bob, I would just say, no, I do not accept this. I do not have time for this. I am healthy. I reject this illness as a reflection, and I release whatever's in my mind that made me vulnerable and allowed that virus in or whatever. Um, and then I, on this one occasion, for the first time in years, I actually felt like, you know, you could, I could feel it in my sinuses starting, and I was like, oh, no, I'm not doing this. And I went to a 7-Eleven in South Philly, and the clerk said, oh, you're getting a cold? I said, well, it seems like I'm getting a cold, but it will be gone by the morning. She goes, oh, no, That's you're going to be sick as a dog in the morning. I said, no, I won't. No, I will be perfectly healthy by morning. And the next day I bounced in there, and she was surprised. I said, it works. I changed I my had mind. I the, the exact same kind of encounter in medical school what? on the elevator with a nurse who said to me, oh, you're going to be sick. And I said, no, I'm, I'm not. Yeah, you are. No, I'm not. I think we went back and forth the entire elevator ride to the ground okay. floor. <laughs> uh-huh. um, what I would say is, you know, yeah, if you're noticing sickness, just simply – see whatever the sickness is as the outer manifestation of fear of some kind. Now, you may not know where that fear comes from. It might be very, very old fear. Uh, it doesn't matter. Um, I like the phrase, I think it's from the text, you know, help me in the conditions that brought the fear about. In other words, okay, I don't have to just get stuck with I'm afraid. Um, I can begin to ask to go deeper and wider to ask to um, have removed or to um, allow to become transparent and, dis and gossamer and ultimately disappear, whatever the original conditions were that caused me to misperceive and go into some degree of fear that my body then just portrayed as physical illness. Um, and in fact, I think I did do that around my um, cardiac cath. I don't even remember what I came upon. Um, I do remember, as I said, you know, realizing, yeah, I've got to go through with this and there's no shame in, in having the procedure that I need uh, because I know I'll feel better uh, at the end of it. And if I don't do it, I'm going to be thinking about it all the time. Mm. Um, but but I, I'm pretty sure I was able to tie it, you know, to something. Uh, probably yeah. my father's heart issues and, you know, gee, am I like him? Uh, nope, guess I'm uh -huh. not. Right, and it's like it says, um, illness is therefore a mistake and needs correction, and that's what we both did in those instances. So know that not only is it possible, but you are absolutely capable of doing it. It just might take a little practice to graduate to the level where you can make cancer disappear. Louise Hay did it in her book, You Can Heal Your Life. She yep. had cancer. They wanted to give her a radical hysterectomy and take everything out, and she says, no, just give me a month. I think I can do this, and she did. So she was largely uh, my inspiration for that. And cool. it's, you know, I love this topic. <laughs> I just, and I, I so love the psychological angle because I do love psychology. Mm. And then being able to pair that with A Course in Miracles and all of the, the, and its practical applications is just not only enlightening, it's a lot of fun too. Well, I mean, you know, it, a Course in Miracles did not come through to top-tier psychologists at Columbia University for no reason. No. It is psychology. It's, it's really the next stage in psychology. You know, the psychology that I learned is here are all the different ways that egos are broken and impaired, and here's how we go about trying to fix them. 
And where I've come to now is, no, there is no fixing an ego. I mean, you can help it move. You can help it to let go and allow spirit to come in more and more. But ultimately, mm-hmm. the ego is a flawed instrument, you know. Um, sure. You know, you, you can't drive your broken bicycle from New York to San Francisco. Uh, it's just not going to happen. You're much better off letting it go and buying a plane ticket. Uh, and the course is that, you know, or, or any spiritual system that allows you to move out of this, uh, you know, um, it could be Jed McKenna, it could be uh, Nisargadatta, it could be um, Adyashanti. I mean, there are a lot of people, um, some of the Advaita uh, Hindu folks, that are all preaching the same thing. But as the Course likes to say, if the Course has come into your life in this way, it's probably for you. Uh, it certainly is the cornerstone of my spiritual philosophy. Um, so, it's the better path. It's, you know, taking the plane to San Francisco rather than trying to ride that old broken down bike that, you know, you could barely get to the corner store on. Uh, mm-hmm. It, it, it's a better way. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And, and a lot of us are operating in a way that, you know, that bicycle may have a tire missing and a seat missing, and they're wondering why they're so uncomfortable. <laughs> Let go of the bike yeah. and regain exactly. your balance and move forward. And move forward. Isn't that funny? Yep. There's well, a I want to tell way. everybody, if you want to revisit some lessons in the book, several were mentioned, but I put a small collection together. And if you'd like to revisit them with regard to defense and attack, uh, check out Lesson 135, 136, 151, 153, and 170. That would, that'll give you something to do for the weekend if you're thinking about anything that we said and would like to address it within your own mind. Anything you'd Perfect. like to tell Thanks, the audience Char. before we go? And I have a beautiful prayer to offer everyone. Um, no, just uh, the logistic that in November I won't be able to do the second Thursday, and we're still um, you know, looking at whether to do the first, the third, or skip it all together. So uh, okay. stay tuned on that one. But October will be second Thursday. Okay, and uh, we'll, we'll just make that announcement and promote it like we always do. Um, Great. Okay, so I'm looking at my... I'm looking at my notes. Yes, lessons to revisit. Very good. I had a wonderful time today, Dr. Bob, and look forward to um, talking to you soon to share some news eventually. So here is our prayer for today, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in. On behalf of Dr. Bob, we appreciate you spending time with us. Absolutely. Okay, and here we go, and then we're going to end the show. Mm. Into Christ's presence will we enter now serenely unaware of everything except his shining face and perfect love. The vision of his face will stay with you, but there will be an instant which transcends all vision, even this, the holiest. This you will never teach, for you attained it not through learning. Yet the vision speaks of your remembrance of what you knew that instant and will surely know again. Amen. 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 Okay, until next time, everyone, God bless and be at peace.